HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, Heritage Radio, and welcome to The Line. If you're joining us for the first time, each episode I sit down with a chef or a restaurateur for a one-on-one interview about their early life, first jobs in food, their career trajectory, and then we talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is Max Sussman. I know him pretty well. He's my older, wiser, more bearded brother, and also my business partner. Together, we co-own Samisa Restaurant located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Max was previously the chef de cuisine at Eve the Restaurant, a beloved neighborhood favorite in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He worked at the Breslin. He was the chef de cuisine right here at Roberta's when it won two stars from the New York Times. And then he led the kitchen at the Cleveland in Manhattan before deciding to pursue his own restaurant concept based around shawarma. He's been nominated for a James Beard Rising Star Chef Award, and he was both a Zagat and Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30. Hey, Max. Hi. How's it uh, going? Let's start at the way beginning, as we usually do on this show. Uh, where were you born, and uh, where did you grow up? I was born in Royal Oak, Michigan. I grew up in Huntington Woods, Michigan, um, just outside of Detroit. And and so, what's that life like for you? This as is a, so funny. As a young kid, <laughs> uh Growing up in the suburbs of Metro Detroit, what did your parents do, and uh, what was what was it like growing up? Well, as you know, <laughs> um, well, it was great. I mean, we um, growing up went to a Jewish day school, which I think really kind of impacted a lot of my experience as um, you know what it's like to grow up. We um, spent a lot of time, uh, a pretty good amount of distance away from our home. The school was about a half hour away. So a lot of our friends were a half hour away. And so, um, we kind of, uh, were, um, 
I didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood until I ended up in high school. But we made up for that with with uh, what I consider like one of the most important experiences, which was going to Camp Tavor over the summers. Um, I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I've known for, in some cases, like how old am I? In yeah, twenty years, which is to me pretty insane because a lot of the people I know. And the people that I've met in other areas, it's amazing if you stay in touch with them for like one or two years, especially in New York when everyone's always moving and moving around and things change so frequently. So that was a big part of it. We're going to talk about Tavor a little bit down the line. Let's still stick with sort of Huntington Woods and and being a little kid. Uh, Our parents, one's a, a lawyer. Uh, recently retired, and one is a working artist, and her studio was at home. So talk a little bit about our childhood with food and sort of our relationship with uh, our family and how we grew up eating and, you know, well, the, the various parts of what it was like to go to a Jewish day school and how that kind of impacted how we interacted with food as, at a young age. I mean, part of the probably the best part of growing up where we grew up was that we had a, a lot of family around all the time. It's definitely one of the things that um, I miss from Michigan living in New York is having aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents uh, all around all the time. It didn't need to be a Thanksgiving or, you know, a super special occasion to get 20 or 30 people over. So um, we are, we've been close with all of our family and with our extended family. And food's a really big part of that. Every time we get together, there'd be a huge spread of, you know, brunch or dinner. There are certain, a lot of foods I associate with certain times of the year. Um, every Rosh Hashanah, every time we did the Jewish New Year, it was mushroom barley soup and cold cut sandwiches. And I have, still have no idea if that is something that any other Jewish family does. They, it kind of makes sense, but also... It's just I think it's just our own thing, and that was at our that was at our grandparents' house. Um, before that, I have really strong memories of going over to um, our grandma's house and eating chicken and chicken soup and doing Shabbat dinner over there. And then that tradition ended up moving up to our parents' house. We did Shabbat dinner every Friday night, and we actually, you know we ate dinner as a family every night. And you know our dad bakes challah still, and he's pretty much baked challah every every week and our mom doesn't like cooking brisket which is a real shame <laughs> but we still managed to make it through <laughs> uh you you alluded to some of the family uh events that we have but you know brunch isn't really an event it's just people yeah. come over and there's bagels and locks and that's a huge part of what our family does but our family does Passover in a pretty intense way, specifically yeah. our parents. So if you can talk a little bit about uh, our family doing Passover and also if you have any intense food memories related to Passover in the house, you helping or yeah. not helping, you know, things like that. Well, it's weird. I mean, Passover is a, it's a story, you know, it's not just about the food. There's a lot going on, but it seems like every, every, um, part of the actual Passover story, you know, the Exodus story has some sort of food component. And, uh, you know, a lot of chefs these days talk about food and memory. And in the Passover story, you actually retell the story of Passover using uh, food 
um, as a really important way to tell certain parts of the story. So you were supposed to eat bitter herbs to remember how bad things were. You're supposed to um, eat sweet things to remember how, how the sweet times were. And you're supposed to drink a lot of wine to, to uh, let yourself, remind yourselves that you are still free. So as a ritual itself, Passover has a lot of that going on. It's actually really cool. Um, and then, so then that's like the uh, cultural memories that you're supposed to kind of retell as a group. But then obviously I have my own memories um, and things that we used to do and would and still do. I mean, we still do the Seder. Um, but I think it's like one of the memories is just you, you eat a huge chunk of horseradish a few times and, and it's before the meal and you haven't had anything and everyone's kind of just hungry already. So like... They actually, you're actually hungry and you're eating horseradish as like an appetizer and everyone's eyes water and everyone's screaming and coughing and it's a little over the top and dramatic, but you know, it's, it's fun. And you do that every year. You start to build a lot of memories around those kind of moments, dipping uh, parsley in salt water, which is kind of bizarre to think about like as part of the ritual, but it actually tastes kind of good. So. To anyone who's never been to a Passover Seder, you've made it sound terrible. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, there's no eating. You eat three gross things, and then there's four hours of prayers. Well, (laughs) it's not that far off. No, then there's like a, you know, there's a wonderful, huge spread that comes out after that. You just got to kind of get through a lot before. I think if you can, if you can tell a little about about the gefilte fish portion of Passover. Yeah. So um, I don't think gefilte fish is a... Is is anything to do with Passover or the Passover story? But our our mom and her sisters and her and uh, her mom have every year for I have actually don't know how long because it's probably started before I actually can remember it. Um, make a filta fish from scratch every year. So a filta fish is sort of like a poached fish meatball that's often sold in a glass jar in like with like a jelly liquidy thing covering it that nobody knows what it is. It's like Keanu, whatever Keanu Reeves was sleeping in. That's exactly in the like that. Yeah, it's like the Matrix slime. Um, and you uh, take the gefilte fish and you dip it in the prepared horseradish, which is often pink from beet juice, and it tastes totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really about that. Um, but our our uh, our mom and aunts and, and Nana um, actually as like a thing they do every year, take um, whole fish. They buy the fish, fillet the fish, make stock with the bones, and then uh, put the fish through grinder and season it and actually poach it themselves, which is like, it's a, it's a, a major ordeal. Um, they, they poach it, they make a poaching liquid, and then cool it and it's served. And it's a very, very special thing. Um, I think it's really special for them to all do together as a, you know, a mother daughter intergenerational, um, project. And then it's actually really cool for everybody to eat gefilte fish that didn't come out of a glass jar. Um, when we're all gathering for this, you know, important meal and doing that together too. So that, uh, and that's something that is super cool as a chef. I love that it happens and I was exposed to it growing up. I remember, thinking how funny it was that our house smelled so bad, uh, uh, you know, having that just like boiled fish, you know, fish skin smell for you in your house for three days is, but it's just part of it. You know, it makes me enjoy it and think about it. And when you go into a fish market and smell the smell, it kind of brings a little of that back too. 
in a lot of interviews that, that we've done over the years, like for our cookbooks or, you know, just surrounding the restaurants that we worked at, we go back to this nice little anecdote that we grew up in a house with no microwave, we weren't allowed to have soda, and then our snack pantry was sort of a joke, right? Like our friends would come over and our snacks would be like cashews. You know, right. that was the that was the delicious, crazy snack that we had. No chocolate or anything. Is this just like a good soundbite or do you think that this actually has anything to do with our relationship to food? I think it really does. I mean, the microwave thing, I really think it does. I, we, you know, like you just said, we didn't have a microwave, which was weird then and is even like weirder now. Like, it's just, you literally get a microwave, like, if you open a checking account. I think they'll just give you a microwave. At this point, they're everywhere. You can't really, it's hard to find a, an apartment that doesn't have a microwave, to be honest. It's just something that everyone has. Um, and actually, interestingly, our parents just moved, redid a whole kitchen, and they still don't have a microwave. So there's just nothing in it for them. And um, I think that the biggest difference was that once we got old enough to start making our own food, there was no easy way, quick and easy microwave way to heat stuff up. So if there were any leftovers, you had to grab a pan and like figure out how to make your food hot without either burning it or just ruining it completely. And as opposed to just sticking some leftovers in a bowl and pressing the thing for two minutes and it's done, you have to figure out how much water to add. If it's a high heat or a low heat, do you need to add any oil and just some really basic kind of super simple things. But that's like really all cooking is when it comes down to it. It's like you take something from your fridge and you heat it up in a pan and you have to make it taste good and make sure it's not cold in, on the, in the middle. So... The, I mean, I do really remember heating up leftover Chinese food and, and like on the on the burner, and it's like it's super different, you know. Do you remember ever like having a friend come over and them seeing you do that, and then not knowing what you were doing? I do. Never seen seen a house without a microwave. Before? No, I could, mainly because I didn't really have friends, but I do remember <laughs> uh, very strong memories of my cousin Aton and I, who were and are about the same age, and so. We did everything together growing up, um, going like nuts on boxes of mac, mac and cheese that we would take, like from, you know, craft mac and cheese, take it from the box and just like make it your own. And that just meant adding like a lot of hot sauce and garlic powder usually. But um, those kind of things where you just start from something and then like start tweaking it are some of the ways that people... I think I started like thinking about food as something that you could be um, put some creative force into as opposed to just following a recipe or, you know, taking it to the box and heating something up. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Aton and creativity <laughs> at Camp Tavor, which is the socialist Jewish summer camp that we went to for many years uh, in Western Michigan that our uncle was the director of. We had a lot of cousins around. So we went there as as campers, right. but can you focus on how you ended up uh, running the kitchen of a 200-person summer camp when uh, you were, I don't know, how, how old were you when you did that for the first summer? I think the first summer I worked there, I was probably probably 17 or 18. In the kitchen. Yeah, in the yeah. kitchen. Because, so basically what you do is you go there, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot, it's a very strong kind of community, and a lot of the kids that go there for summer camp end up being counselors, which is pretty common. So... Um, 
I was going to come back and work as a camp counselor. And um, I ended up coming a few weeks early just to visit. And uh, it turned out that the guy who was running the kitchen had thrown his back out, pulling a huge pot roast out of the oven. That's not a joke. That really did happen. And um, they said, hey, can you help out in the kitchen? I said, uh, you know, you're like a teenager and you have nothing else to do in your life. So sure, I'll just stay here for a couple weeks, start work a little early. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a professional kitchen, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved cooking on a huge scale. I loved using all the equipment. I really liked the idea of being involved in something that was nurturing to a lot of people and, you know, being doing work with your hands that's super hands-on, and you can see the result, like, immediately. It's, it's a craft, as a lot of people, other people have said. So all those things were really, really appealing to me, and um, I ended up learning a lot, but also just, you know, you kind of just get thrown into it and you don't really know what you're learning because you're just doing it. And everyone's just telling you what to do all the time. Um, then the next summer, uh, another, um, camper and I decided to, um, try to convince the director that we could run the kitchen ourselves, which was pretty, uh, not something that we were really qualified to do at that time in our lives. Somehow she went for it. And, um, that was the summer that uh, that Lior and I were co-runners of the kitchen, and we uh, we had a lot of fun, and we basically just took it to a level that um, I don't think anyone had ever taken it to before. And I ended up working there for a few years, and one of the main things we did there was just to get rid of all the frozen food. So we you know, it's a, it's an institutional kitchen, right? So there's, there's freezers and you can buy, you know, you could, it's a cafeteria. You can buy things that are pre-made and you can buy things that are frozen, but you can also just buy ingredients. So we got rid of all the frozen stuff and we just started making everything from scratch. And when you say frozen things, what exactly do you mean? Um, you know, frozen pre-cooked vegetables, frozen pre-cooked like potato type things, a lot of frozen pre-shaped cookie dough, um, mixes, you know, we just figured like, let's just do this ourselves. So the ethos of this, of this summer camp was very, very hands-on, very much like put your money where your mouth is. So everyone's getting their hands dirty, doing various work tasks around the place. And so we figured let's get in, let's get more involved in what it means to actually be cooking and eating. And let's take a little more care with where the ingredients are coming from. Let's like, we, uh, took rowboats across the lake. There was a farm stand of local produce and we started buying from them. And a lot of that stuff's still in place. We started sourcing the coffee a little more carefully, buying fair trade when we could. And um, a lot of that stuff's still in place and that's become a part of this institution, which I feel really um, something I'm really proud about because it makes a difference in the people's lives that you're buying the stuff from and the people that are eating the food. While that fits in with the, the ethos of that summer camp and, you know, the general vibe of everyone that goes there would obviously support that decision, you yeah. know, and still does. As a 19 or a 20-year-old, you're given a budget yeah. for the summer. You don't have much experience doing that. What was your strategy for ordering and production and things of that nature when you look at you have to make three meals a day for 200 plus people and you're just 
two yeah. guys with some assistance that no one really knows what they're doing. How did you? I mean, I how guess, did you organize that? I guess that looking back, you kind of. I mean, I haven't really thought about that a lot until now, but it's actually the same way that you do it in a restaurant, which is you know uh, you have to use labor if you're not buying pre-made ingredients. So it actually just means you have to work a lot harder and spend a lot more time doing it. If you're not buying uh, pre-cooked, par-cooked, frozen, um, blanched vegetables, you're cutting them and doing that stuff yourself. So you save money on ingredients by um, by uh, using the labor that you have instead. And we have um, pretty much indentured servitude situation <laughs> set up where all the cooks were sleeping about 20 feet from the kitchen. And when you needed them to do something, you just grabbed everybody and said, okay, let's, you know, everybody, but it was a fun, it was fun. It was a team effort. Everybody was there do, wanted to be doing that. So, you know, you'd come in, you cook breakfast, you'd prep, prep as hard as you could and hopefully get a little like pool or lake time in the afternoon and then just come back and cook dinner. And it's, you have to create a environment that people enjoy working hard in. I I want to uh, put you on the spot to share a good story from w- the summer that you and I were there together. So your third summer, I ended up coming and basically becoming sort of your right-hand guy. But yeah. then you had a lot more experience and you were leading the kitchen with sort of a, a degree of confidence, right. I would say. And we started doing a lot of really interesting we were making uh like one one meal we did naan and palak paneer right. and it was all indian and you know shabbat dinner we were baking all the challahs and doing roast chicken uh do you remember the chicken fat fight i do remember the chicken <laughs> fat fight and if you can tell the listeners how that came to be and and uh, yeah, that was probably the most irresponsible that we behaved in a, in a long time. But probably, if you could tell luckily it was a long that, time ago. Yeah. Well, the, I feel like the chicken fat fight came out of the um, the chicken fat contest. I think those are really related. So every, um, like you said, every Friday night we'd cook, uh, we'd roast chickens, serve them, and you know, as you're like putting them on trays, you end up with a lot of chicken fat. So we'd pour it all into one big hotel pan, and uh, we sort of ended up with this contest to see who could submerge their hand in the chicken fat the longest. I don't really know another way to say it. So everyone would put their hand in the hotel and pan. And it was hot. It was hot still. It was really hot. <laughs> and you put your hand in the hotel pan, everyone, whoever could leave their hand the longest won. There's really nothing. You didn't win anything. You just, that was it. It was just a way to, I don't really know what we were achieving. <laughs> but it's, it was a fun contest. It made a lot of sense at the time. And so anyways, so then sometimes, and I, so yeah, so then, Somebody must have flung some of that chicken fat from that out of their hand, and there we we generated quite a bit of, of schmaltz at the at Camp Tavor, um, and you know when you're that of that age and there are a lot of kids around and you are pretty much two years removed from being a kid yourself, it's not that hard to segue to like a total food fight situation <laughs> it's just it's just lurking there beneath the surface at all times you're trying to be like responsible and run this kitchen but really part of you just wants to have a food fight all the time and that's exactly what happened there are about a dozen people you're throwing chicken fat across the kitchen in various states of congealment or not and it got in the ceiling and on the walls and 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 everything 
And, and we had a broken bone. Someone slipped and, and Did fell. Did that happen? Yeah, I think Lior, uh, I think your other guy that helped you out, I think he broke maybe a couple fingers on a slip on chicken fat. And then we cleaned it all up. And it was yep. really it was really fun for the four minutes of chicken fat fight. And it was terrible in the six hours that it took us to, uh, to clean it up. <laughs> it's um, not easy to clean up chicken fat on the walls. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about uh, Eve in Ann Arbor and also some of your more recent jobs in New York. Stick with us here on The Line. Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Max Sussman, my brother and business partner in Samisa Restaurant. Uh, Before joining up together to open Samisa, he was the chef at Eve, a restaurant in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was the chef de cuisine here at Roberta's, where we're sitting, at the Cleveland in Manhattan. He has been awarded a Zagat and Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30 and was nominated for a James Beard Rising Star Chef Award. Uh, Max, we were talking about summer camp and and sort of how that didn't have a lot of professional uh, <laughs> responsibility. I mean, obviously you were in charge of some people and uh, you had to put out food every single day, but Eve in Ann Arbor was your first real true yeah. classic restaurant job where you were in a position of leadership. Yeah. You worked there for quite a while during college. What was it like to be in college and have what is a professional career kind of simultaneously? Well, I mean, at first I didn't really know that it was a professional career. I, but when I walked in to Eve, uh, it was kind of the first moment that I was faced with this like kind of life choice that I knew that if I wanted to, and obviously you can change your path at any point, but it felt really, it felt serious to me. I was, I'd been cooking, I would enjoyed it. And, um, worked at, you know, a couple different places, but nothing was really too serious. And Eve was you like, worked at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor. Yeah, I was and- at Zingerman's. I worked at a place called Jefferson Market, which was, um, a neighborhood deli and cafe, but nothing really, I never really any serious restaurants. And Eve was the first place where it felt serious to me. And I walked in and I like everything smelled special. There were spices that I had never really encountered before. There were techniques that I had kind of heard about but didn't really know how to achieve. Um, you know, there are 
some of the fundamental, a lot, all the fundamentals, um, ba- uh, braising and roasting and building sauces and uh, knife work and all these things that I, you know, I, I looked through, you see them happening and it was the point at which I was like, this is something I want to do. I was kind of not really sure if I wanted to be a, a cook or a chef or pr- pursue it professionally. I kind of thought I wanted to be a teacher. There was a lot of other stuff I was interested in. And when I decided to take the job at Eve, it kind of felt like, all right, I'm going down this path. I'm going to see where it, where it takes me. And um, I learned almost every basic technique that I still use today there. And every th- uh, everything um, after it was just like building on that. So, you know, Eve was a really wonderful restaurant. Eve Aronoff was the chef and owner. Um, it was open for dinner only. And it had white tablecloths, which all of these things were like super new to me. So um, my experience there was working when I was in college was like kind of this beginning of understanding that like to learn a lot of this stuff is really requires a lot of sacrifice. Um, and you are basically uh, working when everybody else is having fun, no matter what it's, that's what dinner service is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you go there in the morning or early afternoon, you work all day. And then as soon as everybody else gets off work and, is like thinking about what fun things they're going to do at night is when your job gets super hard. And then you uh, clean up and finish your shift when everyone is out at the bar relaxing. And by the time you get done, everyone's sleeping. And I was like, wow, this is like just a total perspective change on how, you know, we spend our time versus how everyone else spends their time. And so obviously doing that when you're in college was kind of even more I mean, I guess when you're in college, you can that was you can still go out afterwards. It's not like everyone's asleep, but um, you know, you miss a lot of stuff. You miss time that people spend hanging out with each other, and you end up building those bonds with a lot of the people that you work with in the kitchen. It's why people um, call their you know people they work with in the restaurant their family. You know, it's and that's why you call it family meals because you spend so much uh, time with these people that everyone else is spending with their. Um, co-workers or other families that they become your family. And that's pretty much what happened there. Was there a technique or, I mean, obviously amongst the many techniques that you learned at Eve that you thought to yourself, wow, this is so cool. You know, were you, I don't know, learning how to bone out something or you learned how to make a sauce or a braise for the first time where it felt like you were in a totally different world than what you'd ever seen before? Um, I think that you know, like Eve had this. Eve had this curry sauce with curried um, curried mussels. Was what the curry sauce ended up being used for, and I think it really was a, is a really good example of what she can do really well and how she can build layers of flavor. Um, and so you taste this end product, and you're like, "Wow, how do you get all this flavor?" And everything goes together so well. Um, well, it takes a lot of time. It takes a ton of knife work. You have to, you know, cut shallots and ginger for two hours and then, you know, build this sauce that has to simmer for like four or five hours. And then, you know, finally you take that and then you add it to your pan when you're cooking the mussels on the pickup and everything kind of comes together. So it was kind of this first understanding of like, how do you cook in a restaurant? Well, there's a lot of big batch projects that have to happen beforehand. And then there's a lot of finishing work that has to happen on the line. And those two things um, combine and it requires just like a colossal amount of uh, teamwork and coordination because you can't just do everything yourself. You know, you're a good home cook. You you go shopping and cook everything and, and 
cook food for people and it's delicious and they say, wow, what a nice dinner. Thank you. But at a restaurant, it's, it's impossible. You can't do everything on your own. You have to build a team. You have to rely on other people. You have to have everyone working in coordination and knowing the big picture at all times. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So that coordination is actually what falls, a lot of that responsibility falls to the CDC, which is a position that you held at EVE. Yeah. And you were working there for quite some time, and you made the decision that you wanted to move to New York. Can you talk about why you decided to make the decision to move and what was the first job that you had here? And what was that transition like going from the CDC of a restaurant to not being in a leadership position anymore at your new job? Well, yeah. So, um, I had basically been at, at Eve, you know, essentially running the kitchen for about a year at that point. And, developing like a whole other set of skills, still cooking a lot, but there's a lot of different stuff that you have to do. You have to write the schedule. You have to do a lot of ordering, um, expediting, which is, you know, running, running the service. And I just felt that I wanted to put myself into a situation where I was, I, you know, I kind of been teaching myself all this stuff, you know, and I kind of wanted to put myself in a situation where you, you know, go back to not being in a leadership position. I think it's like pretty healthy to do every once in a while where you like just go from being in a leadership position to putting yourself in like being like, you can tell me what to do and you humble yourself again and, and make yourself open to, to learning again um, from other people's experience and, and mentorship. So um, obviously New York is like is and was and maybe will be for <laughs> who knows how long the place where people come to learn how to do things better and to test themselves. And there was a lot of that. I wanted to see if what I thought I knew, what I, see if what I thought I'd learned inside really stood up in a different place where the standards are higher, the skill level is higher. There's just like a lot more cooks, a lot more chefs and people that have a ton of experience. Um, so um, that's why I came here. I um, came here and I knew that there were a I really like the food and the style of cooking at Eve. It was um, arguably a formal restaurant, but it was also very friendly, you know, and um, uh, warm and inviting. Not formal in like a cold way, just formal in like a professional way. So I knew I wanted to work at a place that was that had some of those elements there, as opposed to um, just being like you know the fa- New York's fanciest restaurant. I was really drawn to. Um, Italian cuisine. Eve was mainly French inspired and I wanted to work in, in a kind of a different set of ingredients and techniques. Um, and I, so April Bloomfield was one of the chefs that I was very interested in, in working for and understanding. And, uh, the Breslin had just opened and, um, I trailed at the spotted pig and I trailed at the Breslin and they ended up, uh, wanting me to work at the Breslin more cause it had just opened. And so that was like, how I ended up there and they had just opened for dinner service. So basically I was like one of the, I was the first round of hires that weren't the people that opened the place, which were mostly sous chefs and people that had worked for her at other restaurants. And, um, it's kind of hard to like overstate how much of a culture shock and just shift it was for me to go from a a Midwest, a Midwestern restaurant that closes at 10 on the weekends (laughs) to um, a fast-paced, enormous New York hotel uh, restaurant with uh, 
three floors of prep kitchen that um, is open till for breakfast until midnight on the weekends. It's just like, it's almost like they're just not even both in the same category of, of things. You know, they're technically, they're both restaurants, but like every other aspect is completely different. Um, and, uh, you know, and you basically at the Breslin, you go in, uh, much or much earlier than your shift was supposed to start so that you could actually get all your work done. Um, and the service was like, comparatively speaking, like just brutal, like at 5 PM, you start getting tickets and they don't stop until the restaurant closes. And it's it, at that, when I was working there, it was pretty much like that almost every night. So it's not like, Oh, this is Wednesday. It's going to be great. And let's, you know, give, get yourself a lot of time to prep up for the weekend. It's like, no, every day is like a, was like a weekend day from my previous um, framework. And um, you can't really use that as an excuse. If anything, it means that your own standards have to be higher because there's people coming in all the time. So um, as far as like um, what I, what I learned there was that they're really uh, you have to figure out a way to make all the food good and consistent all the time, no matter what. And, um, the margin of error for like what's considered acceptable at that, at that restaurant at that time, um, was so narrow compared to my previous, what I previously thought was acceptable. So, um, you know, if something was over undercooked, it doesn't get served. It gets made again. If something, if a salad wilts, you throw it out and, and make it again. If something's not hot, you have to figure out if you can heat it up or if you have to start from scratch. And obviously you know a lot of those things and that's what restaurants are. But again, like the range of what was acceptable was just narrowed for me so much that it kind of opened my eyes to what it means to be a, a chef and what, you know, what it means to run a good restaurant there. Over time that the, the Breslin didn't end up being exactly what you wanted to be for a variety of reasons. If you can touch on a little bit of why it wasn't the right fit and how you ended up here in Bushwick at Roberta's, which is again, a great departure in a different direction from, from the Breslin. Yeah. I mean, it was at that time and still, I think there was a lot, um, it, first of all, it was a huge restaurant. There was just so much ground to cover. There were, a lot of things that were out of your control, but were somehow still your responsibility. And like, so that's part of what I was saying before, how you can't actually do everything yourself. You have to rely on other people. Um, that's if there's a lot going on that can be both extremely helpful or super frustrating if you don't get to make everything yourself. And I was kind of at the point at that time where I didn't want to have to rely on people that I didn't really know or have the opportunity to work with more directly. So I really did want to work in a smaller restaurant where I could do a lot of this stuff from like start to finish, um, on my own and with like a smaller team. Um, it was also extremely fast paced and a a fairly, I would say like a fairly aggressive kitchen in terms of the work environment. Um, and that's just not me at all. <laughs> I'm like a much more laid back person than that kitchen uh, required at that time. And I'm perfectly comfortable. <laughs> I'm completely aware of that. So um, Roberta's, it was a way, I would say laid back is not even 
the way to put it. It was a com- it was a universe uh, of difference, and um, as opposed to having a chef screaming down your neck, you know, at every minute, you had I had to rely upon myself to um, execute a lot of those standards. Um, which is what I was really looking for again. So, you know, like going back again, going back and forth between being in a leadership position and, and not, you know, look for the opportunity to then take some of the things you've learned and, and make them, um, and put them into position, put them into play for yourself and for other people. So, um, and yeah, it's funny being here and talking about it because so much looks the same, but so much is changed here. Yeah. If you can, I know you, you worked here for a long time and you, oversaw the back kitchen during a a large transition from uh it being a well-known neighborhood spot that people went to for pizza to sort of a nationally recognized restaurant garnering a lot of accolades sort of extreme wait times and carla was doing these fantastic small tastings that have evolved into blanco his two michelin star restaurant right nearby but can you kind of encapsulate what your experience was like here working with carlo developing your own dishes and becoming a leader again at a kitchen i mean i yeah i think that that the time i was here and i think that i think i've still talked to a lot of the people that i worked with and for them too was a very unique super special time that probably won't really be easily replicated um i Part of what was so special about it was that Roberta's was like basically creating itself at that point. So there was a lot of, and people who were here were doing that. So, you know, a lot of restaurants open with a, a concept and it's very clear what the concept's going to be. You say, oh, we're going to cook, you know, coastal Italian and, or we're going to cook Northern California food from the seventies. Or it's like very, uh, it's something's very well defined and that's how you, um, raise the money and do your PR. And that's, you know, a lot of restaurants, especially this day and age are like that. But Roberta's was like something that just, it evolved on its own. And the, um, the owners let a lot of the people that worked here help, uh, participate in that evolution. So there is, there is a lot of, there are many people whose um, contributions to Roberta's are like still here. And that was, so everybody who worked in the kitchen could basically do that. There was no, there were no rules about, Oh, only this chef can come up with new dishes. It's like, look here, if you want to try something, we'll order it. We can test it out. We'll all t- we all taste everything together. We all critique everything together. If there's something, you know, something there, we can move it in a good direction, taste it again. And then if it's good, it goes in the menu. And it was like, there were all, there were no limitations. And, um, that was what made it so special. It was like, if I felt like I could really come up with the dish, but then build a team where everyone can come up with feedback and it's very participatory and, and everyone's involved and say, Hey, Oh, this, maybe you could try this instead. It's like, it makes for a really, really kind of it's super exciting, um, work environment that you don't really get in a lot of restaurant kitchens where there is a, a huge, there's a chef with a huge ego you're not even really allowed to talk to them. Sometimes you have to talk to their sous chefs through them. You're not really uh, feedback isn't really welcomed in any way. Those that's like how a lot of these old school brigade style kitchens are set up. So to come here and first to work in an environment where it's like, what do you want to do? That's like, that was like, what do you want to do? What do you want to order? What do you want to try? Let's 
let's come up with something. And then to be able to absorb that and then work with it with the other cooks and, um, and build a kitchen and a menu that's kind of based on that, like openness and collaboration is, is really fun. And I don't, I don't know that it'll really happen again because Roberta's was in this kind of like process where it was finding its own identity and relying on a lot of people that worked here to do that. And even if that, when there was, and there was conflict in that, cause not everybody agreed on what was supposed to be. Um, but Carlo was the, he was the, for me, he was the force behind that and the person that allowed that to happen to create the kitchen environment that was super open and very, um, very like lacking in rigidity and rules, but where the ultimate decider was, was something good or not to go on the menu. And obviously every, everybody has their own ways of deciding that, but that was really what it came down to. And, um, the tastings that Carlo did here that were the, like, um, the genesis of what Blanca, what, what ended up becoming Blanca really helped with that. And it exposed me to like a ton of new stuff that I never really had experience with before, like, you know, dry aging, a lot of, um, Japanese ingredients that I'd never really, uh, had the opportunity to work with before that he was fascinated with and, and was, um, ordering and we were tasting all sorts of stuff all the time. So there's a lot of really cool stuff here. Your career up until this point has been on a really high upward trajectory. You had a lot of success at Roberta's, and then you uh, decide to leave here. Uh, you want to pursue a new path, and you end up at the Cleveland in Manhattan, a project that you were the executive chef of, and you had sort of first, last, and final say on everything. Um, that project uh, didn't last. It closed. Can you talk about how it felt to kind of go off on your own? And also, uh, how did it feel when that project, uh, wasn't working out the way you had wanted it to? Yeah. I mean, I really liked the, um, obviously, you know, you leave a place like Roberta's and it, and it's going to be hard to find something that, that, um, you you know, after coming here and having such a wonderful experience, it's hard to find, it's hard to figure out what you want to do next. It's hard to find something that feels like the right path. And, um, I'd never worked in Manhattan. I wanted to try that, um, as a chef, I mean, and, um, the Cleveland was a small, like very neighborhoody restaurant. And, um, the owners were looking for a new chef. And I thought that, that I would be a great fit for that position. So, um, it was my first experience not really having anyone tell you what to do or even provide a framework for that. And in that way, it was really a very big learning experience for me. Um, I was very confident in my cooking ability, in my, in my management ability. Um, but every time you do a new thing, there's, you realize there's more to it than that. And, um, so I think what we I think we made a, a great menu with a lot of really great food, but as you as you said, it didn't end up staying open and, and ended up closing about a year after I um, started working there. And I think to me, I learned that there is a lot more to running a successful restaurant than having good food, and that is really obvious to a lot of restaurateurs. But to someone coming at it from from the chef background and working their way up through um, a line cook and and being a chef, there's to have that be, uh, you know, illustrated for you so clearly was a really, really important learning experience for me. Um, I think that, um, there was a lot of awesome dishes that we came up with, but 
people need to know, people need like a focus. They need to know like what it is that they're coming into your restaurant for. And I just cooked whatever I felt like cooking. <laughs> and that really wasn't enough to like kind of give that restaurant an identity. I was also the, the third chef that had been hired, which that is also like a bit of a warning um, in case anyone is considering <laughs> being the third chef at a restaurant. There might be a reason that there were two before you that aren't there now. <laughs> That's just something to think about, but um, it was it was it was fun. We had a good time, and look, not all restaurants stay open forever. In fact, most of them don't, and sometimes there's not anything that anyone can do about it. And that was like that's just like I don't know if that's a uh, a profound lesson. There's like some Zen there. It wasn't, and sometimes. Things don't work out. Everything has to come together so amazingly well for a restaurant to be successful that it's not really, it's sad, but it's not really surprising that most restaurants just close because it's hard to capture that. I think that coming from Roberta's and a lot of people, this happened to a lot of people that worked here during that time, were just like assumed that a lot of the next things that they would do would immediately have that like spark that Roberta's had for that time. But that was like it's like a once in a who knows how long decade kind of experience for restaurants and for a lot of people. When the Cleveland uh, didn't end up working out anymore, you and I were talking about uh, what each one of us would be doing. I was looking for a new stage in in my career to do something new, and you were also kind of evaluating your options about maybe taking a corporate chef job, maybe going to another big fancy Manhattan restaurant. And we had been fighting this idea of working together for a long time, just saying like this too much. We were roommates and it seemed like a bit much to be spending. And we wrote wrote three freaking (laughs) books together. (laughs) Right. We were (laughs) spending more time than we needed to together. And so we were fighting this idea of, of being partners. And then we decided that we both had this similar idea of what we wanted to do, which was we both love chicken shawarma so right. much. Can you talk a little bit about the initial pitching phase of trying to get Samisa off the ground? And by that, I mean like meeting with investors, making a deck, talk a little bit about that process. Um, well, it's, it's, it's tough. You come up with an idea, you think it's great. And then you have to convince other people to give you money for it. And, um, that is not something that is as easy as you think, even if you are convinced of your idea. So this is kind of goes back to this whole, like you learn new things every time you try to do something else. So, um, you know, you go, go up through being a chef and you learn how to cook and then you learn how to manage and then you learn how to deal with a little bit more of the finances. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, I'm ready to do it on my own. It's like, actually you're, you're really not. (laughs) We have a lot of people tell us that, that, you know, there's just so much more to it. And, um, but, we went through a lot of back and forth with, with investors, people looking for different things. We were looking for different things. We were not really sure what exactly what we were looking for and trying to do, which made it a lot harder. The concept morphed. Yeah. Over but time. I, and you know, and like, that's kind of real, re, that's kind of how these things work. You know, the concepts change. Um, and we ended up basically where we are, we pretty close to where we ended up, which is that we both were really decided that we wanted to do something in the in the fast casual realm for lack of a better term where the focus was on the food affordability was really important and um 
a sort of a table service environment wasn't really the thing that we wanted to do. Um, and we ended up uh, where we are now, which is with uh, Samisa in on Lorimer Street in Williamsburg. It's maybe a little smaller than we had hoped, but <laughs> it's doing it's doing everything we'd hoped it, it would. Um, we wanted to take everything that we had learned and make chicken shawarma that people could feel good about eating um, in a way that, you know, we want, we basically wanted to combine the halal cart experience with a lot of the food that we grew up eating in Southeast Michigan and using organic and local and all natural ingredients and cooking everything from scratch, which is really the difference is that we're, that we make everything. And that was really the selling point And it's why people come in. Can you talk a, a little bit beyond the food and the sourcing sort of the business practices and ideas that we've decided to try to focus on developing in year two. In year one, we were just, let's get open and <laughs> let's try to be responsible and let's try to be, you know, good business people. But can you talk about a couple things that, that you have really helped us focus on in year two from a, a responsibility and growth standpoint? Well, I think that a lot of people know what they want to do and have come into it this come into owning their own business with a lot of high ideals and say, oh, we're going to do things differently. And we, we're of that nature, right? Like we wanted to um, own a business, but we wanted it to be a place that where we, the, all the money that gets spent gets spent in a way that we feel good. All the, everyone that comes in has an experience that like enriches them. And that goes from our purveyors to our employees. Um, so from the very beginning, we, uh, we knew we were going to recycle and compost. And that was something that we built in from day one. We work with a local um, composting uh, group in Bushwick that we know actually takes the stuff, composts it, and uses it for um, urban gardens uh, in the area, which is really, really great. I think like what we're focusing on right now is how to take how to make a difference in our employees' lives in a really constructive way even though we're not a restaurant group that has the resources to do that the way a lot of big restaurant groups do. So, and that's like, it's really tough. We're, you know, it's a small, um, it's still a very small business in the grand scheme of things. So how do you do things like make sure that people have enough sick time? How do you do things that make sure that people have enough money to live? How do you make sure that they have, um, some vacation time. So we're trying to put all these things in place and uh, create a positive work environment for a lot of people. And um, I think that to me that, and then just continuing to find better uh, sources and make sure that we're more engaged with the community is like what we're, what we're constantly striving towards basically. going to get you out of here pretty much on this, this last question. Uh, we're about a year and a half in to Samisa. Curious about what, if you could go back to right before we started, what would you tell yourself if there's, you know, one or two things that you really wish that you knew that you would have been able to, to tell yourself, Hey, it's coming, be ready for it. And also what do you think has been our greatest, uh, or your greatest success, uh, a year and a half into the Samisa project? I think that going back, I would tell myself, and I think we sort of did this, but I would tell myself, you, you know the kind of culture and place that you want to create, and um, it's okay if not everyone uh, fits into that. Because there, 
there's a lot of um, accommodation that people do in order to create, um, in order to make uh, everyone, in order to basically make it so that anyone can work there. But if if your goal is actually to create a respectful and um, a respectful work environment that respects all people regardless of their background, there there are actually a lot of people that don't really want to be in that kind of environment. And they don't need to work at your restaurant. And they can work somewhere else, and that's totally okay. I think that's something that maybe we didn't really fully learn right away. And it helps with hiring to make sure that people fit into the culture of what you're trying to – and the environment that you're trying to create, not just that they're a you know, really fast line cook. That, that, that you, can, you can teach those certain skills, but you can't really change the way people are going to treat other people. What was the second question? Uh, what do you think is our greatest sort of success or your greatest success a year and a half in? What if, is there anything that we've done think, well that a someone who could, someone who's starting their first restaurant, we could say, this worked really well for us. We suggest that you do it as well. I think what we, I think the thing that we're the best at is not being too overly attached to, to either to the menu as a whole or to like, the way that we set the, 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 I've, we're not overly attached to how things were on day one. I think that we've allowed it to evolve considerably and the menus changed and we're both really open to like talking about how, if we don't like it, if we don't like a dish or the way that something's working, you know, it's not like we've, we're in this mentality where we think we have like 20 and we can't change anything about Samisa. It's still a little bit of a work in progress and we're still totally open to, um, changing things. And I think that's really important. Being open to change is like a a really, really important thing. (laughs) What's the rest of 2018 look like for you? And what, (laughs) what does it look like for Samisa? And you've got about one minute to to encapsulate that. (laughs) Well, what's, uh, we, we are planning on opening another two Samisas. We're going to be partnering with Grim uh, Brewing, uh, later this year to open a Samisa kiosk there. And uh, Wilda's Detroit will be opening in 2018. That's another project we're working on. It's an all-day cafe in, in uh, Detroit, Michigan, that we are uh, partnering on and um, going to be doing the menu for there. And there's even more to come. So there's it's going to be a busy year. There's a lot going on. It's very exciting. Maybe, fingers crossed, I'll do another 49 episodes and we'll have you on episode <laughs> 100 to talk about uh, the first year of Wilda's and Samisa uh, location two and three. Hey, Max, thanks for Frank, thanks for uh, joining me on the line. Happy to be here. I guess I'll see you at Samisa in four <laughs> minutes, minutes after we go off the air. <laughs> Everybody, thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, we'll be here every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 